Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. I'll be reading today from Luke chapter 3 verses 21 to 22 and chapter 4 verses 14 to 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Good to be with you, good to sing with you, and to hear you pray and to pray together. Um, As Melissa said, we're wrapping up a series on wisdom, and this is kind of the final week, which I kind of feel sad too. I've just loved kind of thinking through this and uh, planning through it with Dave, who's our other teaching pastor. He's at our other site in Bolton this morning, and so we're sort of going back and forth. Um, And so one of the things we've been doing the last couple of weeks is just adding some time at the end of the message for Q&R. We said R, not A, because you'll get a response. It just may be, I don't know. Um, But so Tony's number is up there. And so if you have questions uh, during the message or as you've been thinking about this series, if any of you have been tracking either live or online, uh, you can text those in and we'll have a a time to sort of do some Q&R and that number will be up later as well, but just wanted to let you know about that. So it was almost exactly nine years ago um, this month that I resigned from the marketing job that I was at with a restaurant company that office is just down the road from here. And uh, one of the interesting things, I gave them a couple of months notice just because of transition and what was happening at the company. And so what was interesting was over the space of two months, I had many conversations with people. First, they said, oh, what, where are you, what company are you going to? I said, no, I'm, I'm going to be a minister of a minute. And they're like, minister of a, like a church? Like what church is this? And so conversation after conversation with people. And one of the things that I heard at least 10 times Um, from 10 different people was, as I explained sort of my process, they said, oh, I guess it's it's a calling, isn't it? Like to to go into sort of professional ministry. Um, And I understand what they're saying. Many people grew up in a tradition where that's, they would even call, or someone who who felt that they were being, um, you know, led to go into a, a role of the priesthood or a pastor or a minister or rabbi, whatever was saying, they were following a call. And so I understand that people say, oh, that's a calling. But if I, if I substituted the words like identity and purpose for calling, does that mean that certain people have an identity and purpose and everybody else has a purposeless life? Like if you said, oh, that must be your purpose in life. And so some people have it, the call, and the rest of us just don't have a purpose. That's kind of a strange 
way to think about it. But I, I think it actually uh, puts its finger on the, one of the issues that we wrestle with as a culture and as people, and maybe even as you're coming in this morning, is sort of these questions of like, yeah, like who am I? Like my identity and purpose, what am I supposed to be doing in life? Is there a purpose in life? We are, as a culture, in a sense, going through an identity crisis, which is one of the reasons why I think the conversations about gender, the conversations about sexual orientation are so um, important for many people to figure out because what we are told is that is your identity and you have to figure it out. You have to be able to declare it. In fact, we're, we're telling a whole new generation of kids, you decide which quite frankly is probably why 50% of them coming out of, they say high school, the stats are, have anxiety. Because it's this idea of saying, you have to pick, you, don't worry, you get to choose, but you have to choose. That there's an identity crisis and, and many, maybe, I, I know this actually true, that many of the younger generation looks at the older generation and says, yeah, well, your identity was your job. What you did was who you are. And so wherever we are on that spectrum saying, yeah, there is a little bit of a crisis of saying, Oh my goodness, it's up to me to determine who I am. And some of that pressure has just led us saying, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I don't, even, I don't think anxiety is just simply a, a challenge for the next generation. It seems to be as a culture of every age, we are wrestling with this sense of anxiety more and more. And I think it has a lot to do with the crisis of identity that we are struggling with, also a crisis of purpose. And if we don't stop very often to ask, wait, what should I be doing in life? Let me sort of suggest to you that the three default purposes that we have in life in our culture is to be happy, to be comfortable, and to accumulate a mass of possessions. Just stop for a moment. Is this not the filter that most of us use to make decisions? So we're talking in this series about making wise decisions about when the moral rules don't really apply in the 80% of decisions we have to make in life that aren't simply about right or wrong. Like, what, what school should I go to? Which kind of friends should I choose? How should I spend my time? How should I spend any disposable income? Um, should I get married? Who should I marry? Who should I date? Should I date, marry this person I am dating? Should I stay married? Where am I gonna go in life? Should I call that headhunter back? What should I do with the role? Should I take this promotion? Should we move? Should we buy a house? Should we buy a bigger house? Should we sell our house? All of these are decisions about wisdom and yet without a sense of purpose, the default lens through which we're making those decisions are what's gonna make me most happy, what's gonna make me most comfortable, and what's gonna allow me to accumulate more. Like if we suddenly got offered a promotion, maybe if we're honest, I know certainly for me, many of us would think, oh, how much more am I getting? How much more money am I gonna making? Many of us have made our job decisions based on that, maybe not that criteria alone, but at least that was number one or number two. Why? Because it's related to the accumulation of wealth and the increase of status or life. Or I'm gonna do this because it makes me happy. We actually have an entire country, well, let's say a continent, maybe the world, but at least in the uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? That's what your goal is. Which is why there's all kinds of arguments about gun control and NRA because the one thing we cannot do is take away our personal freedom. We cannot take away the thing we said would give us the right to choose what makes us happy. Happiness, comfort, and the accumulation of stuff is the default sense of purpose in our lives. So Peter Scazzaro says in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he says, because of this, the vast majority of us go to our graves without knowing who we are. We are unconsciously living someone else's life or at least someone else's expectations for us. This does violence to ourselves, 
our relationship with God, and ultimately to others. Right, if we're honest with ourselves, if happiness, comfort, and the accumulation of stuff is the only filter we are using to make the decisions we are, use, are making in life, what that means is we just need more and more to get less and less. Happiness begins to flatten out. Comfort begins to flatten out. The enjoyment of things begins to flatten out, so we need more to hit the next curve. That's the least of our problems if that's what we're choosing. In many ways, the problems we're living in this society is we're running into the chaos that this kind of purposeless living has caused us. And so when we talk about wisdom, if we don't talk about this issue of identity and calling, we are missing the, the key linchpin for how we make decisions. In many ways, if we didn't have this topic to sit with today, the previous six weeks would not be enough for us to actually begin to have the right filter. And how do we make choices and the 80% of decisions we have to make, the big ones that have a huge determination on the trajectory of our lives where it isn't simply a matter of right or wrong. The good news is that the scriptures tell us that life with God, in a sense of all the way through the story of scripture, and scriptures is the story of God and the story of you and me, that all the way through that story we see that God actually provides us these two essential things that we need for life, that we need for decision making, and that is identity and purpose. And we could look at a number of scriptural passages to do that, but I thought it would best to just look at the life of Jesus himself, in a sense, who came to show us not just God, but humanity. And it's so interesting, if you read the beginning of the biography of Jesus, of these four biographies, and we're going to look at one of them, Luke, today, you will find exactly that, that at the very beginning of Jesus' life, we find this passage about identity. And so Jesus, you know, we know about his birth and we celebrated that at Christmas and there's a few stories about that and then we really don't know much about his life at all up until the age of 30. And all that tells us is it was probably a pretty ordinary life. He was a carpenter's son, took over the family business. And then suddenly at the age of 30, he comes onto the scene and this is one of the opening scenes of his adult life that Luke records for us. When all the people were being baptized by John the baptizer, right, who was Jesus' cousin, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Okay, this is crazy. When you read this first, like if you've ever seen a Hindi movie or a Bollywood movie, that's what this sounds like, right? There's music, there's people, there's animals, there's stuff. This is moment... Literally, though, and you have to read it and read it over again if you've read it before because you missed the significance of this. It's one of the most like, mind-blowing stories of the account of Jesus' life. He's baptized, comes out of the water, and it says heaven opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form, so he thinks some kind of a dove came and rested on him. And then this, a voice thunders from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. What's most stunning about this passage is Jesus hasn't done anything yet. This is before the miracle working. This is before the authoritative teaching that brought the teachers of the laws to their knees. This is before he had died on the cross. This is before he was raised from the dead, before anything had happened, before anyone knew anything about him. In fact, right before it was all going to happen, heaven opens and God says, stop for a moment. I love you. I'm proud of you. Right? With you, I'm well pleased. I'm proud of you. This is the Father God saying to the Son, 
before he goes anywhere, before you do anything, let me just clarify for you and everyone else who you are. You are my son. I love you. And I'm proud of you. I remember taking a course with a bunch of you guys a number of years ago called the men's fraternity. And the guy was saying that kids as they grow up, what they need really to hear more than anything else is that I love you. I'm proud of you. And here's what I notice about you. And so from the time my kids turned seven and their seventh birthday, we go for breakfast and we have a conversation and I just tell them those three things. I love you. I'm proud of you because of this, this, this. I notice, here's what I see about you. Here's what I enjoy about you. This is like God saying that to Jesus before he goes anywhere. He might say, well, what? why would that even happen? Who was that for? Why did Jesus need to, didn't Jesus know that already? Why did Jesus need to know who he was? he was human. Yeah, he was God. He was the son of God. But he was human, and every human needs to know who they are. And right before he goes out and does anything, God the Father affirms his identity. Interesting to note, right? Chapter 4, he goes into the desert to be tempted by the devil. What's the first thing the devil says to him? If you are the son of God. Isn't that how temptation works in our lives first? Question your identity. Are you really God's son? Does he really love you? That's why heaven had to thunder it out over his life before he went anywhere. The identity of Jesus affirmed. But then chapter four, which Serena read for us, he goes into the synagogue, into his hometown. And what they would do in those days was they would have people who were recognized as rabbis or you know, teachers of the scriptures. And they would invite them in to come and read a passage of scripture and then teach from it. And so they would give them um, a scroll of a certain uh, Old Testament prophet or maybe from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And they would read a section of scripture and then they would sit down and teach. And so Jesus goes into his hometown. They give him the scroll of Isaiah, which would have been a lot of paper. Isaiah's 60-something chapters, tons of writing. And Jesus finds the place, look at this. It says he finds this particular section of scripture to read. Here's what he says. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Now he's quoting Isaiah. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He was about to teach. Look what he says. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What was he saying? This is my purpose. That was about me. And this is my purpose. God the Father thunders out his identity. You are loved. I'm proud of you. And he goes on and says, okay, this is my purpose. This is my calling in life. The word calling, in case you're wondering, comes from, it's where we get, it comes from the word vocation, which often we just sort of substitute with occupation, but it's not. It's bigger than that. And that word vocation comes from the Latin word vocatio, which just means summons. God the Father in a sense, called or summoned Jesus for this purpose. And he said, this is my purpose, to preach, to teach, to heal, to forgive, to restore, to set free. Before Jesus did anything, his identity was given in him. Before he went out, he said, okay, this is what I have been summoned to do. This is my calling. Identity, calling, and then the rest of his life. Now you might say, well, of course, it's Jesus. Like, 
Yeah, that's what he was supposed to do. But as we read the biographies of Jesus, one thing we need to remember is Jesus wasn't just sent to show us who God is. He was sent to show us who we are meant to be. Jesus was not only showing us who God is, he was showing us the picture of the new humanity. This is not just my life, it's yours too. Identity, calling. Every one of us has an identity given by God. Every one of us is summoned by God for a purpose in life. And here's how the Apostle Paul puts it to a letter to a group of churches in Ephesus. Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you're ever going to memorize a verse, if you've never memorized a verse of Scripture before, start with this one. Has your identity and your calling in a few words. Who are you? Who am I? You are God's handiwork. The NLT says you are God's masterpiece. Other translations say you are his workmanship. You are the work of God created in Christ Jesus. And one of the things that I think that the humanistic worldview has robbed us of, if we are really just products of time and chance and atoms crashing together, who are we? We're nobody. We, are no more, we have no more value than anything else that happened to appear on the earth. And I think the book of Genesis, when it tells us that God created the world, was not laying out exactly how he did it. It was just saying that he did it. And one of the things you notice in the creation story is all of creation, deep breath, humanity. You are different from everything else in this created world. And the Apostle Paul makes it clear. He says, now you didn't just have that one birth. You have now been created new in Christ Jesus. It's to say this, Jesus actually started a whole new humanity. That's why we use the words born again, or he used the words born again. Second birth, second life. Tony, in that prayer he crafted for us, talks about new life in Christ. Your identity now is in Christ, which means the same thing that God thundered out over Jesus at the beginning of his life, heaven says over you, I love you, I'm proud of you. Even if you didn't have a parent who said that over you, even if you don't have a boss or employer or a spouse that says, I love you, I'm proud of you, you need to see, even in this moment, maybe this is the only reason some of you got brought here to church by the Holy Spirit this morning, was to hear that heaven opens over you and God the Father says, I love you, you're mine. I'm so proud of you. Some of you just need to sit in that moment this morning. That that is your identity. No matter what you have or haven't made of yourself in your career. No matter if you are struggling with what does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a single person? What does it mean to be a married person? What does it mean to be a parent? What does it mean to be a spouse? What does it mean to be an employee? I don't know. I'm struggling with all those things about who I am. We need to wrestle those things through. But below that, beneath that, the foundation of your life, your identity is that you are just like Jesus and how the Father sees you. That all of the love that Christ got from the Father 
the scriptures call us heirs, like we are co-heirs, we inherit that, means we get that too. That's who we are. That is your identity, but this verse also says, but you also have a purpose, created to do good works that God prepared in advance for you to do. Man, God prepared works that are good on the earth that you are meant to do, and he planned those ahead of time. Now, before we get all paralyzed and going, oh, no, no, God has this plan, and like, if I get it, he's like, eh, wrong, eh, wrong, eh, you didn't get it. I have this specific plan, it's all cloudy, and you're not really gonna be able to tell, but just try to get it right. It's not what he's saying. What does it mean that God prepared good works in advance for us to do? It means that God has a plan to renew and change and make new the whole earth and that you and I are the ones who are making it happen on his behalf. The good works in the sense that we are to do are the works that Jesus did on the earth. Jesus didn't do those things because he was God. He did them because he was a human. He was saying, I'm gonna show you a new way to handle power. I'm gonna show the world a new way to treat women and children who were nothing more than property in the, that day and age. I'm gonna show you a new way to handle wealth. I'm gonna show you a new way to handle life status because I'm coming in as a, full, a, a fulfilled human being, not sexually active, not married, but I'm still completely legitimate as a person. I'm gonna show you a new humanity. I'm gonna show you how to handle criticism. I'm gonna show you how to handle rejection. I'm gonna show you how to forgive. I'm going to show you how God really is. These are the good works that you and I have to do on the earth. The works that God prepared in advance for us to do are continuing on the work of Jesus because now we are a new line of humanity. So you might say, okay, so that's my calling in life, but what does that look like? Like, how does that calling, if that's my calling, if that's my purpose, is to carry on, in a sense, the work of Jesus wherever I go, I think just to stop for a moment and say, this is not confined to a job or a life stage. You can do the works that you have been called to do wherever you go. Calling isn't so much, vocation isn't so much about occupation. It is about being summoned by God to carry on the good work of Christ and demonstrating to the world, showing the world what humanity is meant to look like. Not in perfection, but in passionate pursuit of these things that we have been called into. That as Christ Jesus is changing my life, so it changes the way that I work. Your calling doesn't tell you what job to do, it's just gonna tell you how you're gonna do the job that you have to do. Whether you love the work or hate it, whether you feel like you're well compensated or not, whether you're compensated at all, whether you feel like it's over your head or completely below you, your calling, your summons by God is to do your work in a way that reflects Jesus to the people you work with. Your calling is not about whether you're going to be single or whether you're going to be married, but how you're going to be married or how you're going to be single. How you're going to carry it on. It's not about, well, you, I've, been, I've called you to make lots of money. No, it, it's a calling to do or handle wealth in what, and however much God entrusts to you. It's to handle power and influence in however much God entrusts to you. So calling is not this thing that's so specific that we have to figure it out and if we don't get it, we miss it. It is something that is not confined to our job or our life stage or our social status or our socioeconomic status. But it does take decades 
to unwrap the layers on. This isn't something we figure out in weeks or years. Calling is something we are continuing to unfold in our lives, and in many ways we, we live it forward and we understand it backwards. We do the thing that is in front of us to do now, and later on we begin to look back and we begin to reflect and we begin to see how has God been uniquely using me in this place, in this life stage, with this wealth, with this stewarding of power, in this job, in this opportunity, in this family business, as a parent. This is something that gets unfolded. And here's the thing. If we stop trying to figure out our calling, if we stop trying to do this, we will so just sort of give up. And what happens is we drift to the default purposes of happiness, comfort, and the accumulation of things. And we will get to our 50s and our 60s and our 70s, which now they're saying are actually the most productive years of your life. And we will have spent all of those years chasing these default purposes. And so we can check the box on independent wealth and we can check the box on a house and a mortgage paid off and we can check the box on whether or not we've got married or wanted to or put kids through school and we can check the box on recognized in our workplace. And yet we feel completely empty. And at half time, half time, at 50, we say, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. And there are generations of 20s and 30s and 40s saying, who's gonna lead us? Who's gonna teach us? Who's gonna mentor us? Who's gonna pour into us? You cannot stop trying to peel the layers on what your calling is in life. So on the one hand, it's not this so specific thing that if you missed it, you failed it and you missed it when you were 20 or 18 or 16 and you chose the wrong job or you decided not to go to college or whatever and now I'm off the trail. No, but at the same time, it is something that we are meant to progressively discover as we live it out. As people begin to say, hey, I'm really glad you did that. I really noticed that about you or thank you for doing that or thank you for living that way. And so I wanna give you just some questions that you can begin to ask. And when I say begin, don't stop. Ask these till the day you die. Don't stop. How do I determine and understand my calling? Well, what stage of life am I in? It's an important question. You know, if you're a student, a wise decision around your calling is save your money. <laughs> you're gonna need it. I'd say, okay, well, I, you know, that's where you know, you, if you're a student, you might want to say, hey, who's leading me? I like my friends. Friends are really important. If you're in that stage, if you're, if you're a, a tween or a teen or someone in university, your friends matter more than anything else, which is great. But who's a little bit ahead of you down the journey? Some of you are saying, like, please don't ask me to ask my parents. Okay, fine. Who, there's other people in your life. Some of you have youth leaders. Some There's other people, your friends' parents. People down the journey in life saying, who's leading me? If you're over 50, if you had kids, maybe you're an empty nester, here's a question. What, what younger person am I pouring into? What, what in me has God done that's unique that I want to multiply in the life of another person? Maybe he entrusted me with a lot of wealth and maybe I've been, been able to handle it well and it hasn't destroyed me like it's destroyed so many other people. Okay, so who am I teaching that to? Who's coming alongside? I'm at halftime. Who's coming along beside me, behind me? Who can I pour into? If you're single or single again, or now for the foreseeable future, if you've had a life status change, God, what do you want me to do with this now? Whose lives and who's, and, and if, you're, if you're married, you may be saying, hey, if I'm married, which single people am I meant to be poured into because this isn't just about hanging out with people that are like me. If you're a single person, you say, hey, which married couple can I come alongside and pray for? How can I invest my time and my friendships? If you are married, that is your calling. It's one of them. It's not just a box you checked. 
Sometimes I see people making decisions, trying to make wise decisions about should I or should I not say do a PhD? But sometimes we make decisions about something like a PhD or something like a job change that might be our calling that ends up sacrificing something that is definitely our calling, which is to be married. Right? So if you're going to make a decision about something that might be your calling, that's going to seriously compromise something that already is your calling, that's not a wise decision. So what stage of life am I in? If God has blessed me with kids, I have a calling to be a parent. If I'm going to pursue a career or something that might be my calling that's going to take me lots of time away from my kids, I have to really think hard. Is that really what God wants me to do? Because I'm already called to this. What stage you're in is an important question. Another one, who are the people I'm doing life with right now? God calls us to people, not jobs. Get that? God calls us to people, not jobs. So if you're in a job right now, you're hoping to get promoted, or you're hoping things to change, or you're hoping for some kind of lateral move or upward move or whatever, and that doesn't happen, does that change that you're called to those same people? Now, it might mean that you end up moving somewhere else, or you take another opportunity, but don't think that just because you're not getting the attention or the credit or the compensation that you feel like you need, that suddenly that means the people you were called to aren't the people you're called to anymore. God calls us to a who more than just a what we're doing. And so who are you being entrusted with? Who is in your circle of influence? Who happens to be living next to you? Who do you have uh, influence over in your job? Who are the people I'm doing life with right now? This one, what good work gets you fired up? There are certain things that, that fire certain of us up and others not in different ways. And we're like, how could you not be so passionate about this? We see other people and they're like, eh. But you have this thing inside you. It's this good work that you're so drawn to. This was really important for me when Jen and I, we had dated and we had broken up. It was a bit of a messy courtship, mostly because I was an idiot. Um, I'm a little less so now, but trying to sort that out. And I remember talking to my dad about it. We weren't even dating again. And he, we were just talking. I just said, oh man, I feel like, I feel like drawn to her again. He's like, well, why? And I said, well, to be honest, one of the things is she loves the church. And at that point, I wasn't really planning on going into, you know, vocational ministry in the church. I was working in business. I liked what I was doing. But I knew that I couldn't be with someone who's like, church for them was like an hour on Sunday, take it or leave it, if, the, if they had, were, had a late night. Because the church family was my life. That was how I, was where I was given opportunities to lead, is where I was given opportunities to learn an instrument, is where I met some of my closest friends for life. It totally changed my life. And I knew whatever else I was going to be doing in life, I was going to be up to my neck in a faith community. And if I was going to marry somebody that was kind of like, mm, that's your thing, that wouldn't have been a wise decision. That would have been frustrating for her and frustrating for me our whole lives. And so if you have this good work in you that gets you so amped up, because that's what it was for me. For me, the church had been a life-changing experience for most people. It felt like it was just an obstacle to God. So that was the good work that got me fired up is saying, can the church be what it's meant to be? How can we make it what it's meant to be? So what is that for you? And in light of that, what decisions do you need to make about your money, about your time, about who you spend time with, about who you're dating and who you're married to? What are some recurring themes or scenarios and environments in your life? You know, often God works in this sort of repeating way and you say, yeah, this, this person or this circle of people just kind of keep coming up in life. I keep having younger people around me asking me for input. I, I keep having, you know, people around me that don't know anything about Jesus but really want to talk to me about him. Um, what are the recurring themes or the, the environments in your life? What spiritual gifts or talents do you have? 
It's a super important question. You know, uh, one of our elders and a good friend, Rob, he's a painter and an amazing painter. But one of the interesting things is I got to know Rob. Um, he has a passion for God's word. And so as he was painting, he would just have podcasts and God's word in his ears all day. It's a passion. It's, it's, a, it's a thing for him. But he also has a gift of speaking to people and helping them understand God's word in a way that otherwise they wouldn't. And he has people who are coming. He doesn't know I'm saying this. He probably, don't walk out, Robbie. There are people around him that there's a, there's a gift, there's a talent, there's an affirmation of saying, oh, I, I need to talk to you more. And so, yes, he's painting and he does a great job at that, but he's also with people while he's doing it. And there are gifts and talents and abilities that come alongside. And for some of us, maybe those, those blend so beautifully in your job. But maybe they're not. And maybe that's okay. And maybe these are going to be parallel streams that are going to run in your life. You're saying, how do these things fit and connect together? It isn't just about my job or what I'm doing. It isn't just about the thing I'm studying in school to do. Who else am I? And how does that fit together? Here's another one. When do I feel God's presence and power most alive in me? Some of you feel God's presence and power when you're helping other people. Like when you're walking alongside them and you help turn the light on for them and they go, they have an aha moment and you just feel like, oh, I could do this all day. Some of you are doing that as you're teaching, but some of you just happen to be doing that. You're finding you're enjoying that. Some of you enjoy leading. You enjoy being up in front of people. You know, they say most people fear public speaking more than they feel death, fear death. Some of you are like, no, that's fine. I don't fear that at all. You say, well, maybe, maybe there's something about that. I enjoy being in front of people. I enjoy teaching. I enjoy communicating. Others of you are so good at assisting people in their everyday lives. The, the things that seem small to you that bring other people to their knees. And you're always getting called for that. There are some of you that I am calling you for that. Like that's it. You have the gift of helps. You are able to come alongside others in what, see, things that are kind of easy for you that make, make other people go crazy. And, and you like doing that. You like coming alongside them and help them. Some of you love studying. You love reading. I know and everyone's like, who? Who does that? No, but there are some of you love reading. You can't help. You're like constantly taking stuff in. That's something to pay attention to. I actually feel like maybe that's God alive in me. So where are those places when I feel God's power and God's presence? And maybe this one, really important. Who's the benchmark for my decisions in life? We just, the Olympics are, you know, wrapping up. We have to stop asking ourselves, oh, what's wrong with this? There may be nothing wrong with it, but it may not be for you. Like if an Olympian, Olympic athlete benchmarked their diet off of mine or their life off of your sleeping habits, well, what's wrong with like binge watching Netflix on a Friday night until midnight or 1 a.m.? Maybe, maybe not, but for an Olympic athlete, they gotta be up at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. It's just not for them. And what may be okay for you like to get good sleep, is essential for them. What may be okay for you to eat well is essential for them. Why? Because of their calling, because of what they're doing. So oftentimes we are benchmarking our decisions. What we should buy, what we should wear, where we should go, what kinds of vacations we should have, on what kind of everybody else around us is doing. But they don't have the same purpose or calling as you. And so you gotta stop benchmarking off them. They cannot be your benchmark for decision making. So ask yourself, who is your benchmark for your decision making? Your friends, your neighbor, your colleagues? Who am I beginning to, are there other lives that I go, oh, I want a life like that. Look at that person. That's a wise life. That's a life that has impacted other people. I'm gonna to start to benchmark my decisions off of them. And maybe you say, I don't have anyone in my life like that. Okay, that's where you begin. Start to look. Um, okay, let's do, can we do a couple questions here? I'm always forgetting about this Q&R, but we do have time. Tony, have we got questions? All right. 
Okay, one came in and said, um, like, how do you continue to find your identity when your family or friends or maybe other important people in your life um, are speaking maybe or living out of an identity or maybe putting an identity on you that's very different to the identity that God gives us? Like, how do we, how do we navigate through that, some of the challenges of that? There are many different voices speaking into our lives and telling us who we are, who we're meant to be. Mm. It's a good question. Um, let's pray. No. Um, <laughs> it is interesting when you look at the life of Jesus, um, how this distinction between caring about people and not caring so much about what other people think. And so some of the first questions I think to begin, do I know the answer to that question? Because if I'm going to put appropriate boundaries in my life and say no to that person or say yes to this, do I even know why I'm saying yes or no? So I would say some of it is actually, if, if I don't know, if I feel like there's too many voices in on me, if I, don't, if I actually haven't had the space and time to begin to work through this and ask those questions of myself, if I don't know the answer to that, um, that's where I need to begin. And, and then I think um, you know, input from other people is good. Uh, but I think just sort of going, okay, why do I feel like I have to listen to that person? Like sometimes, some of us grew up in families where the unwritten rule was you never go against your parents' wishes. Like that was one of the Ten Commandments of your family, where family is everything, family honor, family name, family tradition, fam and so you go, okay, well, that's, that's an unhealthy influence or propulsion in my life. So I would say beginning of it, so you need to say, why do I feel so compelled that, that I have to listen to that person? And who is that circle of counsel in my life? Not just people who are gonna tell me what I wanna hear, but do I have a few around me? And as Dave talked a few weeks ago about the role community needs to play in decision making, right? Like how does this faith community, how do people who know me, but who aren't afraid to tell me the truth, how can I develop some of a, a circle of wisdom with them um, that will help me kind of filter through some of that. So some of it is answering the question for myself, some of it is like who's in that circle, because I can't let 50 people in, but are there three or four that know me well enough, know God, whose life I respect and who are willing to tell me the truth, I think, to begin there. Um, okay, I'm going to try to blend a couple of these questions because they're related, I think, um, and we'll just make it more complicated for you here, VJ. Um, okay, so what do I do if I, like, I have a sense that there's something I'm called to do. It doesn't really fit with my job. I feel sort of stuck in that. Um, and there may be even some barriers that are keeping me from stepping into that, even apart from kind of where I'm stuck. So maybe there's financial barriers or training barriers or relational or whatever it might be. How do I move forward? I think there are many that feel mm -hmm. just stuck where they might be. How do we even begin to take a step forward? Yeah. So, um, you know, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, when the Apostle Paul is talking about... Um, work, he says, look, if you're a slave and you can get your freedom, get it. In other words, don't be paralyzed by the question of my calling. If you feel like I'm in a place that is killing me, I need to make a move and make a risk. And now you need to ask yourself maybe why am I afraid to do that? And there may be practical financial barriers, but some of us, there's maybe we're letting finances play a bigger role than it even it needs to. And I get there's consideration, but sometimes we can just whitewash that and say, oh, I can't afford that. And we actually haven't done the hard work in saying, well, could I drop 30% in pay? What would, what would we need to do to do that? And how, how important would that be? And so some of those questions are saying, are the barriers real? 
one of the struggles I had was as I was sort of feeling like, like I was loving the church and we had planted this church and it, we were like up to our neck in it every weekend. I'd be coming into work so tired, right? And every year in my review, they'd say, VJ, you're doing a good job, but you don't seem to have a lot of passion. I'm like, I do. I'm just like kind of starting Monday with like 50% of a tank because we're planting this church on the side or whatever. And I kept saying to God, God, I cannot keep these two flames going. Like I cannot keep this passion for this job and this church at the same time. Can you just like snuff one out and let me go fully into the other. He said, no, you can't. Keep them both going. That was a long, hard season in my life of how do I keep a fuel of passion? Now, the one thing I said was, okay, well, I'm getting an opportunity to do some stuff on the side here at the church. I'm not getting paid for it and I can't quit my job yet. So I would say, can you start to do some of the stuff even if you're not getting paid for it? Like Sometimes I think we're so fixed on, it's gotta be a job. It's gotta have a salary attached to it. It's gotta have a plan attached to it before I leave this and saying, well, no, could you carve out a bit more time in your life to just begin to volunteer, to get around people who are doing that, whatever that thing is. Can I do it a little bit to begin with? Because then it actually, I'm a little bit nervous when people say, oh, I have this calling to do this thing, but you've never done it. You've never volunteered with anyone. You don't know anyone who's done it. You've not really investigated it at all. You just have an idea. I don't know that that's a calling. I don't know that you'd be able to answer that question. So I would say, what can you start? And can you start something that by the time it's such a raging fire, it's so obvious you're like, okay, I got to leave this and now go do this. So it's not an either or, but can you begin to cultivate some of that stuff to give you opportunities and room to explore? And then I would go back to the community thing because I know for me in my own journey with this, um, it went, when I had to leave jobs, like transition from one company to another and the kind of role and had an opportunity to say yes to, to kind of a, a cross-functional assignment, one of the jobs I was in, the people in my life that I called and said, what do you think? Do you see this in me? Like, do you think that this is in me? Do, like, like sometimes we have people around us that are really supportive of our passions, but they need to be a little bit critical too and say, yeah, I see that in you or no, you know what, bro, I don't see that in you. Why do you feel so drawn to that? Maybe there's something else. So I would say wise counsel in this for people who know you who are gonna speak the truth is an important part. It's not something we're actually meant to figure out um, alone. So there's maybe more, you can, uh, you can text them into Tony and we can try whether we do a, a blog follow-up on that or something like that. Um, just to end, and we're gonna invite the worship team up just to lead us in a song of response. Um, a, a few weeks ago, I had the chance to attend a 80th birthday party of a family friend. And he's been in our lives as a family since I was born. I don't remember life uh, without him. Now my kids don't remember our family without him. He's always been a part of our family. Now he has so many talents. He's an interior designer, worked in interior design for many, many years. He loves to travel. He's great with people. Um, he loves Jesus. He's a single guy. And he spent most of his life working through all of those things together. So he had a, a pretty big house that he would invite people to stay in, sometimes for months, sometimes years at a time. And we're sitting there in this birthday party. There was about 40 of us in the room. My mom was trying to keep it to a really small list. But there were video tributes coming in from literally all over the world. You changed my life when you invited me. You know, like uh, someone new to the country. He met at the gym. First conversation is, hey, do you know Jesus? I was like, no, I do not know Jesus. <laughs> want to have coffee. Start talking. Hey, I just got here to new to the country from Romania. I need a place to stay. Well, why don't you come? You can rent my basement apartment. Gave him a great rate. Start, and started to mentor him. He's from the other side of the world saying, if you hadn't been in my life, I don't think I would know God. I don't think I would have started my own business. You know, I don't think I would have married the person I married. And tribute after tribute after tribute. 
And many times, like, he has multiplied his eye for beauty in so many people's homes. And some people that were able to pay for it and other people that he didn't ask to pay for it. And so it was a life that he poured out and poured out. I just sat there. I was crying. I said, and I said to my kids after, I said, don't you want a life like that? Like, don't you want to be at the age of 80 when people just can't even get a word in enough to say thank you? And he wouldn't have said, oh, I'm going to be this or I'm going to do this or I'm going to impact this many people. He just did what was in front of him year after year after year, the coming together of his passions, his talents, his job, his love for Jesus, his love for people, and the assets that he had to use. The point is this, when you pursue your calling, everybody is blessed. And I don't know about you, but I want a life, I want a story that at the end of that, as I turn the page going from this life to the next one, where we're going to get to do even more, where there's a moment of pause, where even one or two or three people say, I'm so glad you did. I'm so glad you did.